I'm joined today by Barry Smith and Jobst Landgraber to discuss their fascinating book, Why Machines Will Never Rule the World, published by Routledge in its philosophy imprint. The subtitle of the book is Artificial Intelligence Without Fear. Anyone who's watched UK Column News for a while will know that in almost every episode, references are made to the supposedly imminent takeover of one profession or the other by artificial intelligence. And there's certainly a lot about fear in UK Column News and special broadcasts. So with that subtitle as an excellent uh, promise of what's to come, that we can discuss the subject without fear, I'm delighted to welcome you both. I will read the blurb from the back cover of the book, and then it's over to the both of you to introduce yourselves as you see fit. Barry Smith is one of the most widely cited contemporary philosophers. He has made influential contributions to the foundations of ontology and data science, especially in the biomedical domain. Most recently, his work has led to the creation of an international standard in the field of ontology, which is the first example of a piece of philosophy that has been subjected to the ISO standardization process. Jobst Landgraber is a scientist and entrepreneur with a background in philosophy, mathematics, neuroscience, and bioinformatics. Landgraber is also the founder of Cognotect, a German artificial intelligence company, which has since 2013 provided working systems used by companies in areas such as insurance claims management, real estate management, and medical billing. After more than 10 years in the AI industry, he's developed an exceptional understanding of the limits and potential of AI in the future. Barry, I suppose it might be over to you first because people listening to that may have wondered what ontology is for starters, and it does come into the book repeatedly, ontology. Uh, so perhaps you could explain something of your career, what it is that's taken you to upstate New York where you're speaking to uh, us from today, uh, and something about ontology and data science, how the two relate and what they are. Good. So um, ontology started life as the Latin translation of the Greek word metaphysics. And so that may give some people some idea of what it is. It's the, the study of being in the uh, traditional definition, but um, in a more modern definition, it's the study of the kinds of beings that there are and of the relations between them. And uh, this study uh, was um, involved in the very birth of artificial intelligence. So the first attempt to create artificial intelligence in computers consisted in attempts to replicate the ontologies of uh, ordinary human beings. The idea would be that if we understand how ordinary human beings classify entities in the world, and if we can transmit that information to a robot, then the robot would be able to navigate its way through the world in a way which is similar to uh, how humans do it. Now, with that, ontology became established as not just as part of philosophy, but as part of computer science. And it's been of growing importance, I would say, since around 1970, when these experiments were first made in Stanford. They all failed, incidentally. No one succeeded in creating a robot on the basis of an ontology, but it was uh, certainly a, an important stepping stone in the development of artificial intelligence. So um, the, the, uh, the great successes of ontology are not to be found in 
uh, AI, but rather in biology and medicine. So what happened was that in Iraq, well, at, at the, the point in time when the Human Genome Project was beginning to be completed, medicine in particular, and the life sciences in general, began to realize that they were faced with a gigantic avalanche of new data, new technology, new devices, uh, new kinds of experimental methods, which they knew absolutely nothing about. Uh, and these, these data and methods were based upon uh, a new kind of chemical information, really. And the problem was to find ways of translating this chemical information, which consists of incredibly long strings of letters, into a language which uh, a clinician or a, a biologist could understand. And the, the key to that was something called the gene ontology. And the gene ontology is a collection of terms, nouns, and noun phrases used by biologists to describe biological phenomena, which has been used uh, to tag sequence data, gene, gene sequence data, protein sequence data, RNA sequence data, and so on, over many years, uh, resulting in an investment of several billions of dollars. And this ontology, the gene ontology, serves effectively as the bridge between old biology and clinical medicine on the one hand, and the new chemical biology, which was unleashed by the Genome Project. I was one of the people involved at a crucial stage in the development of the gene ontology uh, in turning it into something which is logically coherent. So. I'm a philosopher by training, and I know something about logic, that the people who built the gene ontology, they knew a lot about genes and a lot about uh, genomic data, but they didn't know very much about logic. And so they built an ontology which was full of logical uh, gaps and, and uh, logically embarrassing steps and missing items and uh, unclear items, and I showed them basically how to do a better job of the logic of the ontology. And that, that gave me a certain influence in the world of bio-ontology, as we might call it. And that led me to become uh, involved in critical work, shall we say, of other biological and medical um, artifacts which were created to, to keep uh, pace with developments in computer science. And um, I was very critical of some of this work. Uh, some of it was uh, scams, that is to say, use of claims about the powers, the computational powers of new uh, medical terminologies, which were unsupported in the, uh, the terminologies themselves. And in connection with my work, I was one of the few people who would speak out about these scams. In connection with my work along these lines, uh, I was... Um, approached by Jobst, who at that time was actually working for one of these scam organizations. He, he can justify himself. Um, and he, he wrote to me, uh, pointing out that he agreed with everything I was saying. And uh, for, for a time, he worked as my mole in, the, uh, in this world. And um, I have been working uh, not, since then in various other kinds of ontology efforts. But I think that's probably enough to give your uh, audience some idea. So uh, are you currently in an academic post? I know that you're in Buffalo, yes. New York. Uh, yes, I'm a professor of philosophy 
of computer science and engineering, of bioinformatics, and of neurology. Uh, but my, my union card, it says philosophy on it. What a fascinating combination. And Jobs Landgraber, who is going to introduce himself now, has no less a fascinating combination. He's the kind of figure that there is perhaps more of in the European continent than in the English-speaking world, because as I read, uh, he has got qualifications in philosophy, uh, mathematics, neuroscience, but also biology and chemistry. So he's got all of the ologies. He's got uh, fields which have a lot of formulas in them, but also fields that require a lot of writing and thinking on particulars uh, with, with using language. Uh, also, I think you're properly trilingual, aren't you, Jobs? Because as well as being a German who uses English for professional life, your langue maternelle is French, but you're speaking from your native Germany. So why don't you give us something about your background and what it was that impelled you to study all of these different disciplines? So thanks, first of all, for inviting us here, um, uh, Alex. So um, I will try to make it short. So in the end, uh, after I finished uh, gymnasium, which is the equivalent of high school um, uh, or grammar school in England, I really didn't know too well what to do. And um, I, I, so I first started philosophy, which I then gave up because I was shocked by the state of university philosophy at the beginning of the 1990s. Um, and um, it was also a time when Barry started to think that he should diversify within philosophy. So I wasn't com completely wrong with my impression. And so then I switched over to medicine and biochemistry, which I finished um, in 1998. And then I started a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute of Psychiatry and Neurogenetics and um, made experiments which yielded so many data points that I this brought me into mathematics. And so then I, I didn't get a degree in mathematics, but I studied it long enough to start publishing a lot of mathematical papers. And so that's how I became a biomathematician. And, but my interest in philosophy never, never really died off. And so when I later got involved into biomedical um, terminology and ontology, I discovered Barry's writings and then uh, got into contact with him. I also, since since the late 90s, started to work in what is now called or what is already was called artificial intelligence at the time. But I prefer to call it statistical learning or machine learning. And I used it a lot in the biomathematical uh, research that I was doing since the late 90s. And I've, I've always used it um, since then in different fields and applied it to different areas. And that's that's why I was because I used it professionally as a technique as an, as a form of applied mathematics. Um, I then also started thinking about it, and in the end, this led um, Barry and me to write first papers about the topic of artificial intelligence, and then later on also our book. So you had a definite writing aim in mind, and the title really brings that out, doesn't it? Why machines will never rule the world. Uh, one or other of you will have proposed that title to the other. We've heard from both of you that you dislike scams and low standards in academia. And I have recorded already one three-part series and transcribed it with my father on low standards in academia. And there's another one in the can um, coming out. So you're certainly not the only figures who've become disenchanted. Um, when did it come about, apart from the world of science fiction, which I think we might get into as well, because it's far from peripheral here, but in, in the world of mainstream hype, uh, commercial hype and academic hype, which I know are symbiotic, they feed off each other. When did people start popping up saying it's not long until machines will rule the world? Um, 
And perhaps even more to the point, you hint at this at various points in the book, what kind of people were they who were making this claim? Did they have the rounded view of life and learning that both of you have? So I think that that claims that machines could become as intelligent as human beings have been made since the 50s. The, the famous paper by Alan Turing, where he describes the Turing test, also discusses this possibility. Turing himself believed that this would come about in the, somewhere in the future. But it became more, I think, in each wave of AI, there was these claims were made. And they were made more aggressively with each wave. So in the, in the first wave, which was the one in which Turing participated, uh, at least at its beginning, it was the claim was made. In the second one, it was also made and led to a rebuttal um, by Dreyfus, who wrote a book against the possibility of artificial intelligence in the early 70s. And then in the third wave, of which we are now contemporaries, it is made in the most aggressive way. And I think one of the leaders making the claim was Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil, who is technology director at Google or who was technology director at Google, a really important man in um, uh, in the development of optical character recognition. So he really did good technical things. But mm -hmm. as an engineer, I think he misses or yes, he, he misses the the understanding of what the human mind is and what it can do. And therefore, he his claims are ungrounded. Well, this, this segues me nicely to the next question, which I'd like to hear both of you talk about. What is the mind? I know that's a pretty massive question, but you do dare to broach the topic in the book. And you do so apophatically. You do so by saying what the mind is not. You say that the mind or the brain, which you use roughly interchangeably, is not a machine uh, and you then bring out some characteristics which it, it does have so over to you on that what is the mind and perhaps you might want to have another pop i think it's quite legitimate at the kurzweilists of the world who say that the mind is reducible to being uh, a mechanical device and thus can be mathematically modeled so i'll have a go at this um the, the whole theme of the book is uh, uh, that there is a distinction between two kinds of systems one kind of system is the mechanical system, as you, this is the term you used. And computers are mechanical systems. Your, your laptop is a mechanical system. A toaster is a mechanical system. And mechanical systems are built by humans. We understand how they work because we understand physics. And we can predict the behavior of the systems on the basis of what we know about their parts and the way they're put together. On the other hand, our complex systems, and all organisms are complex systems. And... Uh, the oceans of the world are complex systems and so on. We can talk a, a, a lot about complex systems. And now the problem is that uh, the claim of the artificial intelligence um, enthusiasts, shall we say, is that the mind itself is, a, is just a mechanical system. And therefore, sooner or later, we will be able to understand how it works in just the same way we understand how a computer or a laptop or a, uh, a uh, toaster or a car works. Uh, and that we argue on the basis of a quite complicated series of arguments, some of which are grounded in mathematics, uh, is not the case. Uh, no organism, not even the simplest organism, is ever going to be able to um, be understood in the way that we understand the workings of mechanisms. And so um, this means that we cannot understand, in particular, how the brain works. This is one of the consequences of our general thesis. The brain is 
I don't want to say it's a mystery because that will upset Jobst, um, since he, he knows a lot about neurology and neurobiology. Uh, but the brain is such that we, can, we will never be able to understand it in the way that we understand mechanisms. Now, what that means is that there are two kinds of intelligence. There's the kind of intelligence that can be achieved by using mechanisms such as computers. That's artificial intelligence. And then there's the kind of intelligence which we might call general intelligence, which is the kind of intelligence exhibited by an organism, specifically the, the human being. And given this uh, gap, this, this necessary gap, which will never be uh, eliminated, and that's, that's probably the weakest point in our argument, um, it, this means that there can never be artificial general intelligence. And now, just one other point relating to this, which grew out of the uh, discussion of Kurzweil. The Kurzweil uh, was one of the very first people to talk about the, the singularity. And our book is really uh, addressed to those people who are worried that the singularity is near. I think that was the title of one of Kurzweil's books. He's been saying that the singularity will be here by 2030. At least somebody once gave me a transcription job to do in which uh, he told an audience some years ago, it's here by 2030. So just to yes. put that in context. I think no, it, it will was, never be here. It, it was, I think, he early he said it would come early, but he keeps postponing it, you know, like the parousia, which was postponed also. <laughs> the, the, the idea behind the singularity is that once we have a computer which is as intelligent as human beings, that computer will be able to program, devise, somehow assemble even more intelligent computers in a, uh, a, 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 a kind of snowball effect to bring about gigantically intelligent computers who will take over the galaxy. Uh, and that idea I know from experience of people I talk to causes real fear in the uh, in, in, in a, a large group of people. And our book was uh, aimed to be an antidote to that fear. It's it's it, it's groundless. And just one other thing. I am actually uh, not so happy with our subtitle because people assume that the world is going to be without fear wherever artificial intelligence is involved. The problem is that there are still going to be people and there are going to be evil people who use artificial intelligence to do things which people might reasonably be afraid of. And so it's artificial intelligence in itself, which we should not be afraid of. But once humans start using artificial intelligence, for instance, in scams, but also in creating super powerful weapons or creating social uh, control mechanisms, then we quite reasonably should be afraid of it. But that means we're afraid of what the humans are doing with AI, not with AI itself. Now, this is underappreciated by people who hear, perhaps with reference to their own profession, that some of the work is going to be taken over by AI, or as you are helpfully directing us to say, artificial general intelligence, uh, a more specific term used in the book. People are hearing that AI will take all these roles on, um, such as claims adjustment, which I read in the book occupies a quarter of a million people in Germany, although that seems to be rapidly dwindling with this uh, computerization. Now, in a sentence, in a nutshell, what your book points out is that AI, in order to improve itself, needs a continual dialogue with people. Just picking up there on what Barry said about people and their intent behind AI. 
And so that forms part of the key argument, the syllogism right there in your introduction. There will never be the singularity super duper AI. Why not? Because it's going to have to be designing a more competent and more amazing successor than itself. And in order to do that, it is going to have to have natural conversations with very intelligent human designers saying, now I need to build the better version of me. And it's going to have to instill confidence in the human co colleagues, no longer programmers, but colleagues and informers, that it knows what on earth it's doing. And the last stage of your syllogism is, in order to do that, it would already have to be artificial general intelligence. It would already have to be a human mini-me, which can't happen. Have I got the syllogism more or less right there? It, it's that was one very beautiful, actually. <laughs> it's one variant of it. Um, uh, and I, I would, I would um, uh, how, how it can be put, and this variant rests on um, the insight that machines cannot um, use um, propos propositional thinking, right? So when, when a machine... Uh, like now the chat GPT, which is creating a huge hype again of how, you know, dangerous and, and almost already fully intelligent this AI seems to be. When when such a, an AI is used to, to create um, utterances, uh, then it is not uttering anything, but it's just producing um, a sequence of symbols, which it doesn't understand. And this is what what many people don't realize. They They think this is impressive and this sounds almost right. But they don't realize that this is just a sequence model that that is not thinking at all. It doesn't have any intentions. It doesn't have any self awareness. It's it's just a syntactic um, uh, reckoning machine, um, like the one uh, about which Ada Lovelace wrote, built by her husband uh, Charles Babbage in the middle of the nineteenth century. So of course the machines now are much more powerful. They can can, can compute billion times faster. Um, than, than these old machines of 150 years ago, but they are still based on the same principle. And so um, they, they, they don't de they cannot develop consciousness or, or think they are just performing mathematical operations, um, uh, which were defined um, in the 1930s by Alan Turing and uh, Alonso Church. And they are just performing combinations of these mathematical procedures. And this is not thinking at all. And so uh, to call the machine intelligence is a marketing trick um, used to create hype, but this is just applied mathematics. Let's thrash out these terms then, because intelligence has the, is the term that's been marketed now. Um, your book is in some ways complementary to one written uh, about 40 years ago now, which I've tipped off to Jobst called uh, Architect or B question mark by Mike Cooley from an educated man coming from the labor movement, uh, organized labor in Ireland and then Britain, uh, pointing out that there's many more orders of magnitude involved in human consciousness and cognition than merely intelligence. And we could go into some of the vocabulary, it varies from author to author, but I mean, if we start very classically with the, the platonic scheme, a character, a personality is made up of mind, feelings and will. And intelligence is a subset of mind. It's not the whole of a character, right? Uh, feelings you don't ignore, but you don't particularly mention in the book either. Will is an absolutely core concept in all three parts of your book. The first part on the mind, the middle part on the hard maths, what can be modeled and what are complex systems, and the third part bringing them together, what can maths do to model a mind? But will 
before and we not that we uh, really meditate upon this unless like you we we look at the philosophers will is absolutely key to having even the most basic conversation isn't it because uh, in a conversational exchange there is a will to compete a will to live in harmony a will to understand each other this this is what's missing when you have a game of chess or a conversation with a computer isn't it uh, it doesn't want to be your friend it just does in a symbolic syntactical sequence what it's told so if you speak to an ai bot in healthcare it doesn't want to heal you uh, if you speak to a bot in a courtroom, which I understand, according to some reports, is happening in China, the bot doesn't want to do justice. It doesn't have feelings or will for justice. And then there's also in the introduction questions about the terms consciousness and cognition. And if I understand correctly, consciousness as a study, that is what has become in philosophy phenomenology. Uh, you pay a lot of tribute to Edmund Husserl, not a very well-known philosopher in the English-speaking world, although I think educated viewers will have heard of him, and a couple of Husserl's near contemporaries, possibly disciples or colleagues, Max Scheler and Arnold Galen. Uh, Jobs, this is your domain. These are German thinkers, and they have a happy marriage of being realists. So they're not nominalists. They don't think that everything's in the mind. They think that what's in the mind is connected even physically to the real world. But they are phenomenologists. They're, they're studying consciousness. They don't go off into the later, the long grass of later 20th century Franco-German philosophy that says nothing really exists. Um, that might sound irrelevant to some of our viewers, but that's the philosophical uh, glue in this, isn't it? That we now know after a lot of study that consciousness, cognition is a lot more than just the mind. Yeah, I mean, before I answer, Barry should also answer this because Barry is is a phenomenologist. Uh, I mean, that this is also the the foundation of one of the foundations of our friendship. Because when I first contacted him, I really uh, mentioned phenomenology, and and I mean, Barry is now doing ontology, but it's very much based on the work of Edmund Husserl. I just would like to mention this. But yes, um, phenomenology I see as the the peak of the development of um, Western philosophy. So I think it is the, the the highest form that philosophy has taken on since it uh, came about in the pre-Socratic times. And um, it is still, as one can see in our book, extremely useful as a tool to understand reality. And this is what we do in the book. So we use um, Max Scheler and Edmund Husserl as two very important philosophers to as a foundation for our work. And the reason they can be used so well is that they are not only realists, but they are also able to give an, provide an explanation for phenomena that cannot be derived from experience. So if you ask yourself, what is the mind? What is consciousness? What is intelligence? It's not, it's not sufficient to only look, look like positivism proposes it at empirical data. And so phenomenology provides um, a philosophical framework how to deal with, with um, concepts or entities which are not made of matter. And so because we need this when we discuss intelligence and, and consciousness, it is so useful to use this philosophy. And, and uh, the main philosophical failures of the 20th century uh, derive either uh, in positivism from the inability to to understand these immaterial um, entities or in the case of Heideggerianism from from an unwillingness to accept uh, rational rationalism realism Aristotelian thinking and I think phenomenology provides um, a foundation 
for a for a mature and um, um, realistic um, view of the world that is also in harmony with common sense. And this is also, I think, one of the driving uh, uh, foundations of our book is that it is really written and thought through in harmony with common sense. And as a bridge to uh, Barry's own response to that, Barry, you mentioned that circa 1970, so half a century ago now, the big drive, perhaps slightly informed by the, the science fiction of uh, Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and, and such like, the big drive was to have a robot that, as you very aptly said, could navigate its way around the world, or even just one profession in the world. Um, have we got there even now? Is there any prospect, given what's just been said by Jobst, of uh, a robot and artificial general intelligence navigating its way around the world? So I think that the, the, the key, and you, you recognize this, uh, to all of this is the will. So we can build robots that can navigate their way around Disneyland, for instance, because it's a controlled environment uh, and uh, only a certain limited range of, uh, of phenomena can be encountered. And that's, that's the key difference between artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence. We have intelligent machines, but they're intelligent only in special worlds where everything is simple. So this we call narrow intelligence. But we don't have machines that can navigate in the ordinary real world that humans navigate in, where, where conditions are changing all the time, where strange phenomena can happen, where we're called upon to, um, uh, to make snap decisions uh, uh, in relation to phenomena that we've ever, uh, never encountered before. And uh, I think that the key here is the will in the following sense. So some of the environments in which machines can navigate are created by games, so video games, or just chess or Go. And, and computers can, as we know, can beat humans when playing games like chess and Go. And so people assume that the computers must want to win. Uh, therefore, computers can want, and therefore computers can want to take over the galaxy. They, they can want to win the game of life with real people. But actually, if you look at the way uh, computers do things like win at chess, they don't do it because they want to do anything. They do it because they've been trained in a certain highly specialized way to have what a human would call a reward system. This is what the AI people call reinforcement learning. And you can build a reward system which will imitate having a will only if you can assign a reward computationally. That means just by doing a certain piece of arithmetic. Now you can't, you can't assign rewards to contributions to a conversation. And if you don't believe me, just try it. Try and set up a reward system which you and your uh, friend or your wife can agree on, and then you'll give each other rewards for each step in the conversation. You will never succeed because a conversation is a realization of a complex system, namely the people involved. So the, the, the AI people can indeed create something that looks very much like a will, but only in those very narrow areas where we have what we have in games, namely a strict set of rules which allow, allows the calculation of rewards so that you can train the machine to get higher and higher rewards by having the machine play itself millions of times. And that's what they do. That's how they create machines that can play chess or go better than humans. And most of the real, really impressive 
and and I, I there are many really impressive achievements of um, um, computers in the recent years. Most of the successes are in areas like games, including mathematically equivalent areas, logic games. All of the successes are in what we call narrow areas. That is to say, areas where we have something like a logic system or a simple system, which we can understand. In other words, something mechanical. Key here is the closed world. So closed world means that um, the attributes and the the um, what is called the phase space, which you can uh, imagine like the multidimensional Cartesian coordinate system, that this phase space is somehow predictable. And either you have a real game situation, like the games Barry mentioned, in which this uh, this is uh, how the games are, or um, you can also model a complex system in reality um, in this way. If you only model it partially, so and these these partial models of complex systems can be very successful at modeling certain very regular patterns of complex systems. For example, the traffic pattern um, in a big town is very regular. There's a lot of traffic in the morning and the afternoon, and then there are other traffic patterns throughout the week, and there are cycles depending on the season and cycles depending on, on bank holidays, and all of this creates a regularity so that you can actually get an AI to model this very well. So whenever also complex systems can be modeled with AI methods if they have a regularity. But the but the problem of complex system is that they have a lot of irregularities and they make them inaccessible to modeling with AI. And that's why whenever complex systems interact and create unexpected outcomes, um, which happens in every conversation or in, in many, many other human interactions as well, even just movements of crowds, um, these irregularities happen. When, whenever this is the case, the AI fails. And that's why the automation potential of AI is only can only be applied to very regular events. And so that's why, for example, um, uh, a self-driving car cannot drive freely in Disney World. It could drive in an empty Disney World, but as soon as people are running around, it will not drive freely. It can only then drive on a certain limited uh, area where, where everything is controlled. But as soon as the... the um, um, this this uh, chaotic nature or um, um, irregular nature of the behavior of complex systems comes into play, the AI will always fail. And it's neither possible to train it then using um, uh, types of mathematical logic, nor the stochastic algorithms which now dominate AI, which are called deep neural networks and which have created the big hype. So in a nutshell, it's the people factor. AI can navigate a world in which there are things, but uh, people and their irritating, unpredictable desires and ways of expressing themselves is going to be beyond it. And the well, computer nature... is always going to say no uh, when an unexpected conversation remark is made. Hence, if you go to a computer to heal you or to judge your case in the law, uh, if it doesn't understand your behavior from a mathematical model, it's going to tell you that you are the problem. You do not compute. It, it, it's not only human beings, it's nature in general, because most of the natural phenomena are complex. So it's also animals, the weather, um, and, and the whole way our world is structured is, is a complex system world. And so therefore, the machine can't cope with the real world because it can only cope with simple system settings. And and so um, in, in a, if you if you think of, for example, using um, 
uh, machine as a as a robotic uh, policeman this will completely fail because the machine will just not be able to cope with the real world because no situation that it encounters is like the situation it was trained for in the laboratory. So it, it will just miserably fail. And that's why the fear that that um, machines will used in this way is wrong, will be used in this way is wrong. There, there, there are legitimate fears though, but this one, for example, isn't because it just doesn't take into consideration that that uh, machines can't be made to act autonomously in such a setting. But it is happening, isn't it? I don't know which of you would like to answer, but UK Column News just in the last couple of months has covered from multiple jurisdictions across North America, some in East Asia as well, that robocops are being <laughs> let loose in certain situations. And the lawyers are the men who are, or the women, of course, in these, in these days, who are writing the algorithms for them, and they're always telling the robocops to err on the side of not getting the police department sued, which isn't very uh, uh, promising as a set of rules of engagement, but it is happening. So perhaps we need to have a, a footnote here on the claim there is no need to fear in the AI era. Oh, so, so what's happening is that, Barry, let me quickly answer this. So, so what's happening is that they are now using um, robots um, for... Um, in, for um, enforcement activities of police but these are not autonomous robots they are like the toys that we used as children the, the, with the um teleguide how do you say they call this with the um remote control like remote control toys so you can actually have a robot that goes into a danger zone uh with a remote control that has sensors and a camera and can explore it but it's not acting autonom autonomously and this is this is also not uh, any time to come. So yes, robots are being used in law enforcement settings, but they are not. They, this is not AI. This is just you know a sensor on wheels. And this sensor on wheels may also become armed soon and be able to shoot or detonate. And all of, all of this isn't nice, but it is not. It it is not um, that this robot acts autonomously. And also there is no. I've never. I've. I've not seen that anywhere there is an automated um, usage of uh, automated AI in any you know court system or legal system. There are of course AI tools in social media surveillance which are being used, which are very primitive, but um, uh, they are. But there is not nothing like this in the actual workings of the jurisdictional system. So I think that there are working examples in traffic law. And there is some academic literature which demonstrates that the, uh, the the use of not robots but computers in in simple traffic law situations is both cheaper than using people and also more often correct than using people, where correct means applying the law to a given traffic situation. And I think what what one needs to say, and this is something that you did in your uh, in your own. AI work, Jobs, is that those systems only work if you have humans in the loop uh, who are there in the whatever it is, the 10% of cases where the uh, computer is not confident that it's giving the right uh, assessment because it doesn't have the right data or because there's something which confuses it. And I want to, uh, to use this as a segue to talking about uh, GPT chat. Um, so I think GPT chat or is it chat GPT? I, I'm I'm uh, always it's confused. Chat about. GPT. They chat call it GPT uh, is the current 
target of hype. And it is indeed possible to generate impressive looking material uh, out of chat GPT. Um, but I, I've been trying all day yesterday and all day today to work out what's going on when I enter into chat GPT simple questions about two people called Barry Smith, both of whom are philosophers. Um, what, what, one lives in London. He's called Barry C. Smith. And he also does work which is vaguely phenomenological. The other one lives in Buffalo, and that's me, and I don't have a middle initial. Now, it, it, when email was first introduced, and both Barry C. and I are old enough to have been around before email, um, when email first started, we used very occasionally to get emails from girls who thought that they were in love with some kind of compound Barry Smith, which included features of him and features of me. It, it didn't happen very often, but it did happen. Uh, it doesn't happen anymore because the email systems are now using AI, in fact, almost certainly, in such a way that those kinds of ambiguities happen almost never. But ChatGPT, did I get it wrong again? Um, is still making exactly the same mistakes. So it thinks I'm from London. And that it makes a number of mistakes like that. It thinks that my job is in Leipzig, which it was 10 years ago. Uh, it still thinks that my job is in Leipzig. It doesn't and, think and so I tell it. Hmm? It doesn't think. Of course. And I tell it, you are making a mistake. Please correct the, this information. And then, so I ask it exactly the same question again, a few seconds later. And it says, along with the complaint that I'm making a mistake. And it says, I am very sorry that I made this mistake. And then it repeats exactly the same false information. This is... Alex, if, if, if I may react to this immediately, this is a typical instance of uh, which has been described for a long time for stochastic learning, that stochastic systems can't be corrected at will. So they are trained on a huge set of data, uh, which which create patterns um, that, that uh, direct them how they should then uh, create new sequences of, of symbols, which is what they then print out on the screen, their output. And so they can be retrained, but there is no guarantee that they will then learn the right things. So when you, when you give a high load of a certain type of language to these models, you can indeed induce a certain learning effect. For example, um, the, the, the chatbot tie by Microsoft five or six years ago when it went online at, at Twitter, it was retrained by the users to utter um, uh, uh, extremist language and sexist language. And it had to be shut off because it was flooded with these utterances by users. And then it copied their behavior. So this can be induced. But to teach a stochastic model to answer a certain uh, special question exactly is almost impossible, especially when the model is very big. So so these models are just approximative sequence models. They don't understand anything. And what Barry just told us is a good example for it. And for those who aren't regularly hearing language of stochastic, I know David Scott, uh, one of our presenters who's very keen on economics, will say that in some contexts it's just posh talk for guesswork. But you're here talking about it in terms of the, the hard maths at the center of your book, aren't you? You're talking about it as uh, referring to the kind of system where the whole world is happening at you and you just have to deal with it without computing in a straight syntactic line as programmed. 
we when we talk, when we say when I just said stochastic system, I mean really the the training type of the AI. So to, to today's AI systems, the one that create the, the big hype are trained using stochastic approaches. So this means that they're basically given a huge set of data from which they learn patterns or from which patterns are distilled. And these patterns are then applied in, in, in novel situations. And this works really well if and only if the pattern of data that was used for training is also is the same as the pattern that is then encountered later upon the usage of the model. And so when that's the case, you have the models can be wonderful and can be super successful and can perform better than human beings. But if there's a deviation from the training pattern, um, then they fail miserably and it's very hard to correct them. Did Barry want to come in on that? Um, I guess I wanted to um, draw a quite general conclusion in, in regard to the general thesis of our book from what uh, we're talking about now. So AI can only work with simple systems, but these simple systems can be huge. So the English language um, is not a simple system, but you can create a simple system which is a model of the English language and which is very, very large and powerful. That's how Google Translate works. It turns the different languages into simple systems, and then it can build uh, codes which enable them to be translated between each other. Now, ChatGPT has, cre has created a simple system out of knowledge on the internet, basically, which is certainly not simple and which is changing all the time. But it does this by creating a temporal cut. It doesn't have information after, I think it's 2021. And that means it could never replace Google because Google will often be required to answer questions about what's happening four minutes ago or four hours ago. And chat GPT, if you ask it for questions about very recent affairs, will say, I apologize, I only have information up to 2021. The reason it has to have a cutoff is because it's not going to have anything static, which it can build a simple model of so that it can use uh, computational uh, tools to process in the way that uh, Yorbs just described. And that's yet another reason why chat GPT is going to be making all kinds of mistakes and it will be making similar kinds of mistakes even when it's GPT-4 which is used as a basis which will have many more data and I think we should underline what Jobs has just said many people in the AI world think that if we just have more training data then we will crack ever more aspects of intelligence that we have hitherto not been able to crack but that's not true. The size of the training data is not relevant. What's relevant is its representativeness. It has to be representative of the entire target set, which is open-ended, not a closed world. And that is always impossible when we're dealing with systems which involve organisms like human beings. The, the core property that that makes this so is that they are, the process that happen in animate systems are non-ergodic. And that means that they don't create repeating distributions. And so if the distribution always, like for example, simple example are, is the pattern of each single wave that occurs at the English coast. So since England emerged uh, uh, a long time ago, there have been a huge number of waves uh, 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 which arrived at England's coast, but none of them is like the other. Each one is unique. And so, and so, this is a good example for a system that 
that no people don't think so much about, which seems rather simple, but it's highly complicated. And even if you would make movies at a very high resolution of millions and billions of waves, still we couldn't predict how the ne next wave would look like at a molecular level. And this is this gives you an example for for complex systems in 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 inanimate nature, and and that, that tells you why mathematical modeling of complex systems is always only an approximation. This approximation can be very powerful in in um, some contexts. It can also be dangerous. Um, uh, we can talk about usage of AI in warfare if you're interested in this. But but um, it still is based on the design and usage by humans. So we've rather nicely hit upon a couple of the other concepts I wanted to bring in here. Um, one relating to language, artificial translation and artificial interpreting, that is voice translation. And the other being this key distinction between inanimate and animate, which is in many fields of study, including linguistics, a key concept, literally meaning not having a soul and having a soul respectively. Because uh, Jobs was just sketching out there when things become animate, there is no predicting the individual components that go into them. Now, a moment ago, Barry was talking about uh, machine translation, and that's a term that's more common in my profession of translation and interpreting. It's more accurate than to say artificial translation. People who haven't any background in this will have got a sense from the first part of this interview that a machine is a model for the purposes of this discussion, a model of reality, not reality. So for the whole time since your book mentions 2014, since Google Translate and its competitors uh, like DeepL by Langenscheidt being German, it's better, of course, um, since they came to maturity, uh, just getting up to a decade, getting on for a decade ago now, people have been struck by how well they do in some areas and how awfully in others. Uh, I'm a Bible translator and a literary translator. The things I do would never go through DeepL or Google Translate, although I have to confess, like the whole of the profession, I have the dirty secret of using them for the legwork. I remain responsible for the end product, much like we like to compare ourselves with pilots and surgeons in that you have to have tens of thousands of hours getting the uh, habit into your muscle memory after you get your qualifications before you're any good to fly solo. Right. So a machine can do the simple operations of flying in clear uh, air or, or doing the not too challenging parts of the operation or doing the boring bits of a translation, but you can't do any of the human intensive bits. You have to be looking over the machine's shoulder. And so about 10 years ago, I started to get pinged as a freelancer by companies promising to build translation and in the end voice translation. So interpreting systems that would be good enough to be used at the United Nations. Uh, and they all fall over. They're all predicated upon this idea that um, you, the, the, the paid monkeys, are going to fill in syntax cards. And in the end, the whole English language, we've just heard it's a very complex system, is going to be reduced to syntax. And all these annoying variations that these pesky humans use in their wording is going to be reduced. Uh, so uh, a sentence that starts with um, although has to be rephrased by a human to one that starts X is true, but Y is not true. Then supposedly the machine has got the full syntactic model. But your book points out the machines fall flat at a much earlier stage than that. And this goes right back to NSA and GCHQ in the 1950s using Sistran, which is still available as a machine translator uh, to process a lot of Russian intercepted material to get from the semantics. In other words, what the speaker or writer is getting at to the syntax isn't going to work, 
right? Let's take a very simple sentence of German, such as I might hear at a conference that I'm interpreting for. Let's say that the speaker says at some point in a new paragraph, es gibt eine Menge Gründe, warum das nicht geht, right? Supposedly, that's syntactically reducible so that es gibt will be reduced to there is or there are. But that's not how I'm going to repl uh, replicate it generally. Right? So uh, I might actually, like some conference interpreters, use some of the logic symbols that are featured in your book. I might use an upside down capital E. There exists a logic symbol in the margin of my notes to tell me that at this point I have to predicate something. I have to say it exists. But when it comes to the end of the speech in German, if I'm working in consecutive mode and I then have to speak English to the audience, I'm going to be reading the room at that point before I decide how to interpret it. If I see that it's a bunch of non-native speakers of English or native speakers who are half asleep and who need a bit of a jolt, I might go into Jack and Jill mode of English and say, there are several reasons why not. And I would use the intonation as well that says, listen up, guys, this is a new point. If I'm in full flow and I see that the audience is with me and hanging on the edge of their seat, I might start with the predicate and at the end of the sentence say, and there's no end of reasons why that won't be the case. Right. So there's infinite numbers of ways of saying things from German to English, and it's not at the syntactic level, the computable level that the problem resolves, uh, re resides. It's at the level of what am I getting at? What are my feelings? And above all, what is my will in this conversation? What am I trying to achieve? And so you're quite confident, the pair of you, that given another decade, we won't see more of this asymptotic shoot upwards. At one point in the book, you say that, or you quote an author in the introduction as saying that what looks like a curve towards infinity often turns out just to be one of those long S-shaped curves and it might flatten out. And you're fairly convinced philosophically that that's the way it's going to be. We're not going to uh, carry on for a few years and then find that uh, interpreters are completely replaced. I gave a, a talk a couple of weeks ago in uh, Sao Paulo to a big German software conference. And um, I, I gave the talk in English, but there were two um, uh, simultaneous translators. Brazilian, uh, and both of them, uh, in Portuguese, yeah. <laughs> they were translating my talk into Portuguese. Most of the audience had headphones. And um, the, both of them wanted to have lunch with me. They, they were, they were, basically, they wanted to kiss my feet because... I had shown why they would still have a job in the, in the next five or 10 years. And we truly do believe that. So uh, GPT-4 will create something which in some respects is slightly better than GPT-3, but it will still have some of the same problems. And, um, uh, and I think we need to deal with the, the distinction between different sorts of audiences when we evaluate these phenomena. So when we look at G chat GPT, we're trying to find ways in which it goes wrong. Or when we look at Google Translate, we're trying to find way ways in which it goes wrong. But most people are happy if it seems to go right and they will be happy over and over again because they won't be looking for the errors. In fact, I didn't notice when I first asked GPT, uh, chat GPT uh, about myself, the, the errors. It was only when I looked more carefully on the next day that I realized that they were confusing me with another Barry Smith. I would like to add that um, I think we are already seeing in machine translation, we are already seeing a saturation. Um, and the saturation comes from the problem that we have not only the level of syntax, 
which which machines can only um, uh, uh, deal with in a limited way. But we also, of course, have the layers of semantics and text pragmatics, so that there is also um, uh, the context which the sentence creates for each other situation in which the text occurs and so on. To to interpret this correctly, you need and you described it really well, Alex. You need intentionality. So your intentionality allows you, your will and your intentionality derived from your will allow you to, to understand what does the situation mean for me? What does it probably mean for the others? You need intersubjectivity. You need to put yourself in the, in the shoes of the others. Think, aha, what is the relevant part for them? And so on. And, and if you are a good interpreter, and especially also in simultaneous interpretation, you are able to do this very fast. And the good results means that you have captured the intentionality both of the speaker and also the probable intentionality of the listener. So which, which will let you interpret in a different way, given even if you interpret the same speaker uh, to different listeners, you will give different interpretations and different translations. And all of this you can't model mathematically. And so therefore this profession is not endangered at all. Basically Google Translate for translators and I translate a lot of texts as well and have I've always done it in my life um uh, I I use it now as a kind of dictionary that can also uh, trans help to translate phrases or to give approximations for phrases and and sometimes sentences but of course um the the real work of the translation always has to be done by the human who understands what's going on who understands the situation and so so this is an area where um where ai can't replace human beings um where it can do is where ai works best is when you have a situation that's completely repetitive like an assembly line um or also warfare in which um certain patterns of uh, destruction can be repeated and automated yeah so there are now approaches in warfare to use um armies of drones that are not as precise as a human being in their destructive work, but that will basically clean out a whole area out of the tanks that are in the area. So these systems are now um, being developed and they will soon be deployed and um, they will be very, very effective and menacing and terrible, but they will um, they will not be intelligent. They will just be a, 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 enable a new form of destructive warfare. So, so this these things happen and we have to think about them. They may have to be regulated. We have to cope with them, but it's much better to do this from a point of view of truly understanding what is mathematically happening. Shall we, in the final section of this interview, then talk about the hierarchy of sciences? Because Jobs has just ended there by saying what's mathematically possible. In the introduction, you talk about three levels of impossibility. Uh, of which mathematical impossibility is the most interesting to me. Physical impossibilities has to do with the laws of physics, of course, and technically impossible has to do with the state of our development as humans. The third, mathematics, and this only really dawned on me very recently when reading a history of science written by an objectivist, a devotee of Ayn Rand. I have question marks over her and her school, but be that as it may, this objectivist summary of science feel free to disagree with the conclusion here gentlemen but it said mathematics itself is very deeply human uh that the problem with certain philosophical traditions was that it wasn't thought to be human uh, but it is because it's how we relate things in the world to each other being an objectivist uh this historian of science went further and said that mathematics is how we relate quantities of things to others in the world so it's a model in our mind so maths model mind getting closer and closer together than the layman might care to think. Uh, in other words, mathematical impossibilities 
isn't just things that the universe says no to. They're things which won't go because we, uh, at least under God, if you're a believer, we are, in a sense, running the universe. We are understanding what works and we're telling, we're winding the machines up and telling them to go. So if something's a mathematical impossibility, there is no way around it by waiting for further technical genius developments. Am I right? I agreed with some of what you were saying there. In fact, we are writing at the moment a paper, uh, which will be the beginning of a series of papers if everything works out, uh, which defends a view of mathematics along precisely the lines you just described. So mathematics like physics is a part of human culture. It develops historically with time. Um, but it, it hand in hand therewith goes the discovery of necessary laws. And some of these necessary laws will be internal to mathematics, and some of them will be uh, laws pertaining to the application of mathematics. And so one necessary law, which we've been talking about all, all morning, or all afternoon in your case, uh, has to do with what computers can do. And computers can only execute programs if those programs require computations in the mathematically defined sense, which are called Church-Turing computations, computability in the Church-Turing sense, which is very limited to a very small number of very boring, trivial operations, but which when you have a big enough and a powerful computer can be applied to bodies of data which have trillions of data points, and so they can achieve great things. So ChatGPT achieves the great things which it seems to offer by simple, very, very simple steps applied to long, long, long vectors of ones and zeros. There's no knowledge, no will, no semantics. There are just very simple steps applied very quickly in a very powerful way to these long strings of ones and zeros. And it will always be thus. There is never going to be a computer which is not working like that. That's what... Uh, uh, that's what Turing held, and that's what everyone will continue to hold. And that is the weak point in our book, because many people who are visionaries, they will say, oh, mathematics may discover a new way of computing, which is not Church-Turing computing. It may be some kind of uh, organic computing or um, uh, non-digital computing, uh, analog computing. And when we have that, then we will have artificial general intelligence and that's where we draw the line that's where we have to say well uh, maybe you're right but we're not holding our I, breath yeah i would go a bit further than than barry so first of all um, mathematics is of course a part of our culture but it's also um it's preconditions is a structure of our brain and so the limitations we have in mathematics which are which math mathematics is much less limited than Turing computability, right? So Turing computability is, is a subset of mathematics. Mathematics is, is broader, and we could think of machines that could do more uh, uh, mathematics than today's Turing machines can. This might really evolve. However, we still have the limitation of mathematics itself. Where does this limitation come from? I think it comes from the human mind or the mind-body continuum, as we say in the book, that the human mind is limited structurally by its biology to certain to a certain level of complexity and the laws, the necessary laws that Barry has um, uh, just uh, alluded to, which we have in mathematics and physics, I think, these necessary laws, they are um, uh, related, they are determined um, by the maximum complexity that we can mathematically figure out or imagine. 
And so um, if we look at, at um, uh, the most advanced part of physics, like quantum field theory, we very, very clearly see that quantum field theory is limited by our mathematical capabilities. Now, I believe that there are uh, that they are um, consequence of the structural limitations of the brain that we have and that evolved uh, 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 in the process of, of human evolution. And so, yes, this evolution might go on, but we are not to expect um, exponential changes of our mathematical capabilities. And even if we had them, we would still be completely overwhelmed by the number of variables um, and the complexity of their relationships that occur for example, in the human mind or even in uh, in the brain of an animal. So so I think that the mathematical limitations are there to stay and that it's much better as a scientist to 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 select the fields of study with these limitations in mind. And that is what all the clever and great physicists of the 20th century and also the 21st century and all the good mathematicians have done. They have focused their minds on problems that are accessible um, to mathematical thinking. And they all know, the great ones all know very well um, how limited this is, and they have all said it. And those who, who make us believe that artificial intelligence can, uh, can be created and that machines can become more intelligent than human beings are not these mathematicians and physicists. There's one ex ex uh, exception, uh, Stephen Hawking. But Stephen Hawking, I think, never took the time to think artificial intelligence fully through. But, and he also has a tendency for, for sensationalism. But other than him, I know no really great physicist or mathematician who has ever, who believes in the feasibility of artificial intelligence, because all of them, by own experience, what they do when they do mathematical models of reality, they know about the limitations. Is it perhaps part of the problem that physics and mathematics have become much less experimental? much less doing in the real world for perhaps a century and have become much more deductive, much more theorizing for which obviously there is a place. But could it be that the induction, the, the keeping of a whole model of the world in our mind and refining it as we find new facts has fallen by the wayside? Uh, it was there obviously as we built up from classical geometry to algebra, astronomy, physics, the whole line. You mentioned in the book that biology is uh, is an odd man out in this because, as you mentioned a moment ago, and in the book, even animals, let alone people, have a mind-body continuum. So you can't model what the body's feeling. <clears throat> even animals are placing themselves to some extent in the in the person or the, the other animal that's their predator or prey, uh, and that that can't be modeled. You know, so, but even where it's just inanimate phenomena in the world, it, ha have the sciences at this point uh, started navel-gazing with their theories, that they're unable, unable even to see what they're missing by not inducting more. Before Barry answers this, just one very important remark here. AI, as it's practiced today, is highly inductive. So the, the applied artificial intelligence research that has led to ChatGPT and many, many other applications is highly inductive because it's using empirical material to create to automatically create mathematical algorithms or equations. So it is highly inductive. Um, how, so, but you are still, you are still, um, uh, I think, um, pointing at a very important problem, and that is that the reflection um, of science uh, by theoreticians has become detached from reality to a certain extent, and and this has this is created this is in the humanities this has this is a huge problem that has been ongoing for quite a long while now, but even in physics itself there are now areas where, where physicists 
have detached themselves from the from experimentation and are claiming that they that they can produce pure theories of validity. This is a very dangerous trend in physics, but it I don't think that it explains uh, the the hype around artificial intelligence. Um, this hype rather comes from people from practitioners. Um, on the one side, who don't understand well enough math the mathematics of what they're doing. On the other hand, of course, from, from entrepreneurs and politicians who want to exploit AI for certain purposes. Are there no worse intentions at play than that, Jobst? And I bounce that back to you because in the previous uh, interview you gave about your book with uh, Jamie Franklin on Irreverent Podcast, you made no secret of your Christian profession and you talked about the, the, the different intentions there may be here. I, I ask because the most famous science fiction scenario in the world, and I know it was influential in Germany as well, was Isaac Asimov's uh, series, Foundation. And of course, the classic three volumes are written in the 1940s and 50s. They're part of this California-based uh, exuberance of the post-war era in which a number of questionable characters are writing science fiction. Some go on to found cults uh, or to become drug-addled maniacs later, including uh, Aldous Huxley, of course, who oversees that scene and approves of it, as it were. Uh, but others are more sober-minded, like Asimov, and have a better intent for mankind. Although I have to say he was brought into science fiction by Robert Heinlein, who was a senior member of an out-and-out -out Satanist group, the Ordo Templi Orientalis, and it was Heinlein who told Asimov after the war, you'd better write science fiction. Interesting detail. But Asimov lives until the early 90s, and at the end of his books, uh, the, 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 the last sequel he writes before his death, has his favourite character, the robot Daniel Olivor, who in the mid-20th century is doing what Barry told us the robots failed to do, which was to navigate their way around the world. Poor Daniel Olivor, uh, who perhaps is the real hero, uh, even more than Harry Seldon there, uh, at the very end of the whole series, so here's a spoiler if you haven't read the series, uh, he summons the humans who've been trying to unite the galaxy in peace and says, well, I was behind the drive to artificial intelligence. Uh, I, who am myself a robot, um, I tried to get through physics and through biology, everyone to will the same will, to get rid of this annoying problem that people have their own wills. I can't cope with that. I've now managed to engineer the universe, or at least the galaxy rather, to a point where everyone wants the same thing. I even set up the environmental movement, says the robot, so that people would feel an, an, an impulsion to want the same things. Okay, you can, you can say with goodwill, Asimov's got good intentions here, but that the whole end of this, of this saga, which I think leaves its mark deeply on other sci-fi and people who come out of that cultural milieu like Kurzweil is, okay, we have to get everyone pointing the same way. We have to have them sharing the same will and feelings. In other words, they become a single mind body. So it, can we discount the possibility that there are some actively dark, evil actors in the field who want AI or who want to robotize the human brain to do just what Asimov says his robot wants to do at the end, which is having failed to build a smarter model of himself using circuitry at the very end, he has to take hold of the most advanced human in the galaxy he can find and basically steal his brain. Um, in order to go further with the plan. So how much of that is going on right now in AI? I would say, so from the intentions perspective, there may be people who have this intention. And it is, it, if, it, if you allow me to make one religious remark here, Barry, in Matthew 4, the temptations that the devil sets up for Christ, there are, uh, there's, there are around power and bread, right? Creating bread for everyone and having one world power that governs the whole world so that peace can be established and that we can create heaven on earth. 
And I think that that this is not for nothing that these are the big temptations because, because this seems so nice. But we know that we can't achieve this and we know that by, by no means, even in North Korea, we cannot have everyone intend the same thing. Even with the most cruel system, the most violence and, and abuse of power, this can be achieved. And if there are people who want this, well, they are bound to fail. And the question is just how much pain will be will happen on the way to failure to failing. Um, however, nothing of what you described from the from the foundation saga is currently happening because all of it is so far away from mathematical, physical, and technical feasibility that it's just not happening. So, give you an example: this firm by Elon Musk to create blood, brain implant chips has failed so miserably that he is now sorry that he's now. Um, that he's now getting back to just creating good old basal ganglia simulating chips, which have been around since 25 or 30 years. So this is so um, far away from feasibility that it's just not even, um, the intent may be dangerous, but the way to, to, to try to create this will not go via AI, but much more traditional ways of um, uh, exerting power uh, upon human beings. I'd like to uh, volunteer a more modest thesis, uh, more modest than what uh, both of you uh, just speculated about. So I think that there are limits to evolution. There will never be nine feet tall humans because you just can't make the biology work in such a way that those humans would be uh, selected for. And this applies not just on Earth, it applies on all conceivable planets. And it applies not just to height, it also applies to intelligence. So there will never be considerably more intelligent people than the ones we have now. There will never be uh, people who are cleverer than Leibniz and Newton, uh, who will evolve and establish societies, and neither here nor on other planets. And this has the beautiful consequence that we can explain Fermi's paradox. The reason why we don't see aliens regularly landing on Earth, uh, flying in spaceships which would go faster than the speed of light, is because they're as stupid as we are. And all the governments on Earth are just as stupid as we are. So they'll never be able to create these big effects, which Alex uh, has dreams and nightmares about. Uh, it will always be just shuffs, uh, stumbling through from one bad outcome to another, which and we pick up the pieces and move on to the, the next stumble. Let's round off then with some practical encouragement. We've already consoled those who are dreaming dreams and, and nightmares. Uh, people in their own line of work may be told, whether they're in management or at the coalface, AI is replacing you or your boss or your underling or part of your job. It may be framed positively. It's taking the donkey work off you, whether you're a soldier or a lawyer or a doctor. Uh, people may have their qualms about that, perhaps the more so having heard this, or at least they, they, uh, they will understand it's not really feasible. What kind of uh, educated doubts should people sound in their own meetings at work uh, in order to bring a measure of reality back to the conversation and de-hype? Or perhaps in the longer term, what kind of more rounded figures should people in their own line of work be seeking to produce so that perhaps the next generation of leadership will not be enticed by the hucksterism that's prevailed for so long with regard to AI? I think that 
there are two for the normal workforce person. The best thing is to look at industrial revolution as it has happened in the last 150 years. And so industrial revolution has, has certainly um, mechanized a part of human work. And I think most of this was really beneficial because dangerous and very painful work has been taken on by machines. And um, new work opportunities have been created. Um, so I think that, that um, this will continue, but it won't continue. And this is the second point at a speed that is comparable to the mechanization of labor in the in the second half of the, of the 19th century. At that time, there was really a, a very fast mechanization of human labor. Uh, for example, in the in the um, uh, cloth uh, uh, manufacturing and uh, industry, and and this this is not happening because we have had the AI technology that is now being developed and deployed. We have had it now since 25 years. Now, and since 10 years, there has been a huge, or 15 years, there has now been a huge progress with the neural networks, but we haven't seen a big change in productivity. And so that means that the usability of these technologies is fairly limited. Otherwise, they would now already be used massively in, in, in various industries and they are being used, but their effect on productivity is quite modest. And so this, this is the second point to point to, is that it's, it, it is part it is part of historical development, but it's not as extreme and radical um, as uh, it was thought. And and the other advice one can give is, of course, education, right? Because education always helps to cope with changing environments. Barry, you're involved in education, so your contribution on this is most welcome as the last word. So for a long time, people were arguing that just as simultaneous translators would soon be out of the job because of computers. Uh, so ontologists would soon be out of a job because AI can create the ontologies and do a better job than humans. Uh, all I can say is that all my students get jobs immediately and they're earning, some of them are earning straight from uh, the PhD more than I am uh, because there is a need for human beings who can build ontologies. And I, I, um, I, I take comfort from that. <laughs> I think if you have a coherent um, problem to solve uh, in uh, relation to complex systems and every science, every data gathering effort, every uh, new experimental method is a complex system. You're going to need humans to work out how to uh, make use of the results. So I'm, I don't worry and I tell my students not to worry. This has been an extremely rewarding conversation about why machines will never rule the world by Jobst Landgreber and Barry Smith, published by Routledge in its philosophy series. But don't be put off by that. If you've never read a book knowingly from the philosophy section of a bookshop or library before, make this the one, because if you read it chapter by chapter, and there's a guide in the introduction to which order is best for you, depending on what kind of reader you are, you will get through it, even if you have to skip a couple of equations. I would very much recommend that people read that book, and I hope that we'll be talking to both Jobst and Barry again. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you, Alex.